0: And if you need that kind of support, I really recommend this podcast. To listen to Understood Explains, search for Understood Explains in your podcast app. That's Understood Explains. Welcome to Mom and Mind. I'm Perinatal Psychologist and host Dr. Kat. There is more to the story than just postpartum depression. This podcast aims to share it all from personal stories and lived experience to experts who break down the ups and downs of life from getting pregnant, pregnancy, perinatal loss, and postpartum adjustment to new parenthood. While this is not psychotherapy or medical advice, it is all of the stuff you ever wanted to know about mental health and new parenthood. Welcome to mom and mind. I'm your host, Dr. Kat. I am so grateful that you are here with us today on this episode. I'm going to start off at the top right now, just letting you know that we are going to be touching on a pretty sensitive topic, which is perinatal loss and pregnancy loss. So if you have recently experienced a loss or are in the grieving process, please do consider if right now is the time to listen or not, and know that if you decide to pass on this episode for today, we will be here for you when you're ready to listen. Our guest today, Janae Hopgood, is going to be sharing about her personal experience and journey into motherhood. That includes the support of reproductive technologies, as well as the loss of her twin daughters. She will also be sharing her experience related to the adoption of her son and some of the experiences that she had both during that process and afterwards. Janae holds an LMFT, a master's in education, and is perinatal mental health certified. She's an individual couple partner and family therapist, clinical sexologist, author, speaker, doctoral candidate, and occasional adjunct professor. Her Pennsylvania private practice centers people of marginalized identities, specifically Black and LGBTQ, healing from family of origin challenges, relational difficulties, fertility and family creation processes, perinatal mental health, perinatal loss healing, and healthy for you sexuality and realignment of the body, mind, and spirit to support healing. Janae is also the founder of the Black Angel Mom community, which includes private Facebook community for Black loss parents, a blog supporting healing after perinatal loss, a guided journal, and a conversation card deck to aid in therapeutic processing and discussions individually with support systems and for clinicians. As stated before, Janae is the mother of three beautiful children, twin daughters who have passed, and one son, Earthside. We are very honored to have Janae with us and to be able to share her story, as well as her clinical perspective and words of encouragement and advice that she has for other people going through these processes. So let's meet Janae. Welcome, Janae. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Yeah. I'm um, grateful that you're coming on uh, to share your story, both as a professional and your personal story and entry into some parts of this work. Yeah. It's just, there's so many of us where that crosses over. And sometimes we think that therapists are are people who just don't have issues or or whatever, but that's not the case where we're still human, (laughs) me included. So yeah, I just invite you to start wherever you'd like with your story.
1: Okay. So, okay. So my, my name is Janae and I would say that, geez, where do you start? Okay. So I would start by saying that I am, I've always been a person who wanted to parent, right? So that's been a dream of mine, even since I was like a little girl, I can remember being like, Oh yeah, I really want to like have children and be a mom and that kind of thing. And I'm an only child. So it's not like I had a lot of experience with people younger than me or siblings, but I just knew that that was a, a thing that I wanted for myself. When I finally got to a place where I was comfortable starting to try to have children, I was older. I maybe just turned 30, I think at the time. And. I thought that it would just be like an easy thing uh, for the most part. I mean, I was partnered in a way. My former partner, we were not able to conceive naturally. So I already knew that we were going to have to go through assisted reproductive technologies to try and do that. But I thought it would be really simple for the most part. I expected that I was still fairly young. Things were where they were supposed to be. Like any testing and levels and things like that always came back normal. So I was like, okay, we'll be great. We tried independently, like meaning just our own research and collaboration and finding people and whatnot, finding donors. We tried ourselves for about maybe about three or four months and um, didn't take. So we said, okay, well let's actually go through like the clinic the fertility clinic to see what what's what and make sure that we had the timing together and all that stuff so we met with them and and they confirmed that everything seemed like it was where and what it was supposed to be and that IUI intrauterine insemination would be fine and good for us so that's what we started doing we tried 6 times 5 before a surgery that I had and then one after. So every time that we tried IUI, I never got pregnant, always had a good ovarian response to the stimulation part of the process and just really couldn't figure out what the reason was for me not getting pregnant. Then probably right after the fifth try or right around the fifth try of IUI, my doctor at the time noticed that one of the fibroids that I had was like showing up a lot larger than it had been at the time that we started, likely age and actually the drugs, the the stimulation stuff, making it grow. So she didn't say this, but in my mind, I was like, I wonder if, (laughs) I wonder if like my fibroids are like distorting something, right? Mm -hmm. Distorting Mm -hmm. the positioning of everything. And like, maybe that's why, you know, it's not working if my tubes are open and hormone levels are where they're supposed to be. So I decided to get the myomectomy to have the fibroids removed. I had two of them. They were Really big. One of them was like the size of a baby's head or something like it was
0: oh gosh. large. Yeah, um, and it
1: was on the back side of my uterus. They both were outside of my uterus. So that had less healing time before we could start. Were you in quite a bit of pain? I have I have back pain, the way that my spine is kind of curved anyway. I have a little mm. bit of back pain. And but I think that it was actually also related to that. That particular okay. one was actually on the back side of my uterus and was kind of pressing against my spine a little bit. Um yeah. so I didn't have like a lot of regular pain. My periods were a little bit heavy, but not really anything that was super duper noticeable. And I didn't have any like distended nature of the belly or anything. So I really didn't know that they were there outside of seeing it on the ultrasounds when I would go in. So I had them removed. Horrendous. (laughs) I'm not a person who has surgery, so it's Uh. really... That was the first major surgery I had ever had. And it was really, it took a long time. I was under for like four and a half hours, which it doesn't usually take that long, apparently, for Mm -hmm. the laparoscopic surgery. I don't respond well to anesthesia. So coming out of it, I was super groggy, super nauseous for like a really long time and then in Mm -hmm. a lot of pain um, afterwards. So that was not fun, but... Mm -hmm we did that. And at the end of 2016, and then started to try again, we did another IUI cycle after that. Mm -hmm. That IUI cycle didn't work either. So I was like, okay. At the end of the, after the surgery, my doctor who did the myomectomy told me that one of my tubes was not open anymore. Mm -hmm. So I was like, okay, (laughs) that's new information. I don't know how that happened or just kind of out of nowhere, I guess. I, well, let me not say out of nowhere, I don't know what happened, but it they both were open when I had my HSG huh. throughout the entire um, process, as far as I knew. They were both open. Mm-hmm. I don't know if the surgery did something, I don't know if the fibroid did something, I don't know, but one of them ended up being closed, so they said, Well, we've done all this IUI. I think it's time for us to move on to IVF if that's what you go, if that's what y'all want to do. So we decided to go with IVF. That was not something that I wanted to do for a variety of reasons. One, it's super expensive. Where I live, it's super expensive. I know some places cover it, but in Pennsylvania, it is not covered. So just the sheer sticker shock of seeing how much money that was going to cost, I was like, oh my gosh. And also the invasive nature of it. I'm not super squeamish about needles, but that many needles is kind of yeah, <laughs> it's a different yeah. piece than going to get like blood drawn. Mm-hmm. So, so yeah, so that was just a lot. It wasn't really something that I wanted to do, but we pulled our money and did what we could. And we were able to sign up for this kind of shared risk plan that they had at the fertility clinic. So you got a certain amount of IVF cycles and either you came home with a live baby or you got your money back. That was their plan. So first try of IVF get pregnant with my daughters, Aviva and Jora. Super excited. Did not, we put two embryos back, but I was not, I didn't expect both of them to take for some reason. I don't know. I just was like, probably maybe just one. We'll see. But I remember the nurse calling me when she gave me the results and she was like, you're like super pregnant. Like (laughs) your, your numbers are really, really high. And it made me start to wonder if there was more than one baby. Turns out there was. During the beginning part of the process of the pregnancy, actually, when we went to the first ultrasound, there were actually three sacks that had heartbeats. And, but the third was a little slower in development for than the two. And then that one eventually ended up reabsorbing into my uterus, but Aviva and Jorah continued to grow and their heartbeats are really strong. They were doing really well. It was very sweet to see them. And then right around, probably right around 16 weeks or so, I started to notice that I was like leaking a little bit. And at first I thought it was urine, but then I realized like it was happening when I wasn't going to the bathroom, but it was only little bits here and there. Then I had like I was teaching a dance class at the time and I remember <laughs> I remember actually dancing the 24 Karat Magic by Bruno Mars and I did this move and I felt like this huge gush of fluid and I was like oh my gosh and I just like went to the bathroom. It stopped after that but it still was enough that I was like I need to call the doctor cuz that's like strange like that should yeah. not be happening. Yeah. When I called the doctor's office the nurse told me oh you're probably just peeing. Babies are getting bigger or pressing on your bladder. That's probably what it is. Lots of things come out of your vagina when you're pregnant. It's just, it's not anything to worry about. That was probably, I feel like that was maybe like a Monday or Tuesday. And I had had my next appointment the following Monday for my, all the antenatal testing unit stuff. At the time I was like 34, 35. So I was advanced maternal age and they had to do all this other testing uh, just to make sure the babies were genetically normal. And so I decided to wait. I called again that Friday. She They then also said, okay, well, on Monday you have an appointment. So just come in on Monday and we'll talk about that. Get to the doctor, the testing unit actually on that Monday, they didn't have me down for an ultrasound, despite how much I had called about this. They just were having me get blood work drawn. And so I had to like argue with the people to have an ultrasound. Cause I was like, something is not right. Like I'm still leaking every now and then. And like, this is not okay. Okay. They test they do the the ultrasound and I discovered that my one daughter Jora her sac completely ruptured so she was when I looked at the image aviva was still in her sac intact but jora was like like straight like almost across the top of my uterus instead of being in like the fetal position her body was like straight and the i remember the tech <clears throat> he he kind of looked at my partner and then he, he was like, Oh, I'll, I'll be back. And then he like left the room. And obviously I can see the image. So I know that something is not right. And because we had gone through fertility treatment, I was actually used to. Having an ultrasound, like every week or every couple of weeks, which I know yeah, normal right. for you know people who don't necessarily go through that process. So I was very familiar with exactly what an ultrasound should look like for me and my mm-hmm. girls at the time. So I knew that that was not okay. Ultimately, they then told us that we were they were not going to survive. Jora was originally baby a. But because her sac ruptured and they moved around, she became baby B and then Aviva was right at my cervix and my cervix was open like three centimeters. So they were like, well, you're going to you're going to have to give birth to these babies. I remember I think it was the one there was one nurse who said, well, you can just go home. If you want, huh? like, you can just go home, and you'll pass them at home, and, and that'll be. Are point. you kidding? No. Oh my! I'm not gonna curse, but like, yeah, I'm yeah. No, serious. if like, you did, I'd understand that. Yeah, I remember. I was so offended, and I remember saying to her, "Like, are you kidding me? Like, I'm not. I'm not yeah. going home. Like, right? So, I ended the? up getting Right. <laughs> I ended up getting admitted to the hospital. Stayed overnight. I was distraught. Of course, my partner at the time was also super upset. And, and I was like, well, maybe can I, can we get a second opinion? Can they, can they go in and take Jora out? But because Aviva's sack was intact and actually both of them were still alive, still moving. You can see them moving on the ultrasound. <laughs> so it was like, particularly Aviva, like she was fine, so to speak. So I was like, well, can they, can they go around it? But they were saying, well, if we do that, then we risk rupturing the other baby sack and it, the same thing would happen. Then, of course, I got all the stories of if you wait, <clears throat> then the one baby might pass, and then you might get sepsis or something, and then we have to do a hysterectomy. They gave me all oh my the gosh, mongering stuff, and and I was like, well, I just at least need to wait until the next day. So that mm-hmm. was June sixth uh, was a uh, Monday, June sixth of twenty seventeen. I waited until June seventh and the next doctor that came in said the same thing and um, they asked me like what was the process or what did I want to do so it was a decision to give birth to them or to have a DNE. at first I was saying no
0: good decision here no there, no there's nothing
1: at first I was like I don't want to be I was just distraught and I was of like course. I don't want to be awake for this I don't I don't yeah. I just just put me to sleep and just do it just do whatever mm-hmm. you got to do but the more I thought about it and the the connection that I feel like I had already felt with them, I was mm-hmm. like, I don't. In transparency, I was like, what are, if I'm not awake? What are they going to do with them after?
0: Mm-hmm. And yeah, oh, yeah, like, yeah,
1: You know, like when they get them out, I was like, then what? Right,
0: um, Your mother, okay. you're mothering
1: them. Exactly. Still. Yeah. And thinking and also remembering back to that was maybe six months or so after my surgery with the myomectomy. I mm. know how I am after anesthesia. So I was like, uh, right. I, yeah. I'm i going to be out of it. I don't want that to happen. And then I mm-hmm. lose all this time. Mm-hmm. So I decided to give birth to them, to be induced into to give birth to them in the hospital. So they were born on June 7th at... 9.04 and 9.23 p.m. I always, I have a thing, a ritual thing that I do for them every Wednesday. But yeah, they were born alive. I held them. They were moving. They responded to my touch. Like it was really, it was a beautiful moment, despite how sad it was, like just to really get to see them. Was and it 16 weeks or late? It was later yeah. than that by this time. It was like 16 weeks, seven days. So just five, oh. seven, 17 mm-hmm. weeks. But yeah, they, I mean, they fit in my hand, but they were, mm-hmm. they were fully formed and just they were just beautiful. And I think about it, I'm like, because I could see their, I remember their faces so clearly. Mm-hmm. And I remember how much I was like, oh my gosh, they look like me. Like, <laughs> I, and because I don't have any siblings. Like, I don't mm-hmm. often see people who look like me <laughs> in my right. life. So it was yeah. like very, it was very sweet to to have that moment. And I got to stay with them overnight into June 8th. So I had them in the room with me. They thank God for the for the midwife who delivered, who helped me deliver them because she suggested the photos, and initially I said I didn't want photos, and she was like, "I'm just gonna take them, and if you don't want them, we won't show them to you." But like, just in case, sometimes people do want them, and you might be surprised how you feel afterwards or whatever. I was grateful mm-hmm. that that happened. Like that, the actual birthing part of that experience was actually really beautiful and really supportive mm-hmm. from the staff and from my partner at the time. It was everything leading up to it that was trash. Yeah. For- Part of it. (laughs) (laughs) For sure. Yeah. So I held them and had them with me, literally like I had on a tank top like this. And I had them like in wrapped up and in Mm -hmm. my shirt for that pretty much that whole day. And I didn't, I left the hospital in like the early evening, maybe like five or six o'clock on June 8th. Horrendous to Mm -hmm. be pregnant and to be on L&D and to hear other people giving birth and to hear other babies crying and to walk out and you don't have any babies and to leave them. Like that was really... The process of of handing them to the funeral home director that I had to call myself. Uh. Right. Call around too. by the way, I had to call. They gave me a list of places oh, no, in no. the area and said... There
0: was no like social worker on staff to
1: help. There was no one that was given or sent to me. I don't know whether there was or wasn't, but no one Gosh. offered that to me. They came in with a paper uh. that had a list of... People who provide these kinds of services and said you have to call and see who you can find. So, right, right, uh, <laughs> awful. awful, awful experience awful. that awful. no parent should ever be put in a position mm-hmm. to have to do themselves no. to be, do unsupported. It was no,
0: terrible. the hospital should absolutely have somebody to help arrange that for you. Right.
1: So I'm literally sitting there with them either in my shirt with me mm-hmm. or my mom had come to visit us or she was holding them. And I'm making calls on my cell phone about what's happening. Mm-hmm. Every time I'm talking to someone, I'm just bawling. like because, Yeah. Um, Just can't even believe I'm asking for that. The one funeral funeral home director that I did go with, they were really that person was really, really sweet. And her and her partner had also had a loss. So she had a really keen understanding of like what it was like for a partner to give birth in the hospital and lose baby and like that kind of thing. So she was super gentle, super affectionate, super just really wonderful and I, I felt like, even though I just met her that day, I felt like I trusted her with them. Mm-hmm. Like, it was hard for me to leave them, but I I didn't even hand them to the nurse. Like, I handed them to her when I left. Yeah. So, I mean, that's that's generally the story. I ended up, we ended up deciding to have the girls cremated. And the that funeral home director in particular was really, she's really good about explaining some things to me that I didn't. Necessarily know like that if you are cremating a baby or a child that that actually should happen first like early in the day because if not the the actual like machine or whatever is too hot and it will like like disintegrate basically and not oh. leave you with any ashes so. You actually have to do that first, instead of doing it later in the day. So we were the first people there, which I didn't know at all. No, I'm you're, I'm just
0: learning this now as well. But I mean, in, this is um, so so far in your in your story. Just in terms of like the the interactions from professionals around you is like a class on what to do and what to not do for sure. So definitely, any professionals listening, there there are really there are, are supportive ways to to go about this and very unsupportive ways. And I'm, I'm glad that at least you had some of that support to to balance out, like you said, the trash that happened prior. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker,
2: you'll find what you came for here
0: and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com.
3: Are you overwhelmed by the things that get in the way of you doing what you want to do? Are you looking for ways to simplify life to better align with your values? Do you want to create space in your schedule so you have room for more of the good stuff? Play, joy, relationships, gratitude, and more? If you answered yes to any of these questions, I invite you to check out Edit Your Life, a podcast to help you edit the unnecessary from your life so you have more room to enjoy the awesome. Through episodes with me, Christine Coe, and a range of super smart, compassionate, and thoughtful guests, you'll come away with big picture insights and practical ways to declutter your home, schedule, and mental space without getting bogged down by perfection. I have always believed that small moments and actions matter tremendously. My goal is to help you find agency and space in your life through doable baby steps that will leave you feeling accomplished instead of overwhelmed. Check out Edit Your Life wherever you enjoy your podcasts.
0: But this particular piece of information, I mean, how would any lost parent know that?
1: Right. I had no idea. So I was super surprised, but also like, I was just really appreciative that she was so... Again, like so caring and so specific about the information, but offering it in a way that was gentle so that we were aware of what would happen. And and frankly, she explained that like sometimes people don't tell the truth about these things and then they will do the process. And what you have is not really or not entirely the ashes of... Your loved one.
0: Super important then for for lost parents, Uh, like as a point of advocating for themselves. And again, for anyone listening, for somebody that you love to be able to give them this really difficult bit of information, but so necessary. So necessary.
1: So necessary. So Mm -hmm. necessary. So she did a really good job with even explaining how she was going to uh, dress them or like kind of Mm -hmm. pack, pack it so that they did not. So that basically we had material because we what we wanted were their ashes.
0: Yeah, um, of course.
1: And um, yeah, so I have I have cremation jewelry that their ashes are actually in here.
0: Oh, um, some of the,
1: the rest of them are in something else. But it's
0: like a small container. Mm-hmm.
1: So it has uh, you probably can't see it that well, but it has a little screw on the bottom. Mm-hmm. You open it up and put the ashes in. So, yes, yeah, so I have this. My previous partner had a bracelet. My mom has some of their ashes as well. And then I keep the rest of them here. But yeah, that was important to me. So it was just a really, despite how horrendous and and I've been watching Brene Brown's most recent special and (laughs) one of the first ones talks about anguish. But like, really, that's what the feeling was. was. Just anguish and complete like despair and grief. Despite those feelings, there were these small Moments of beauty in that that I remember the midwife and holding them and seeing them move and the pictures that thank goodness I have pictures because I don't have anything else besides ashes and the the gentleness and care that the funeral home director took with us and even sent a card to my house after.
0: Oh my gosh. I wish everyone behaved this way, like with such compassion and humanity. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. It was really helpful. She was really helpful.
0: So yeah. your your process after that, I mean, after going home and being in the anguish and uh, trying to figure out a uh, life after dealing with all of that,
1: um, mm-hmm. is, is it deep, felt deep, deep, grief. Yeah. Deep grief, deep grief. It felt like I was not real. It felt like the situation was not real. Mm-hmm. I I just was like, confused and didn't understand what happened. And typically when they talk about PPROM, which is what happened with the girls, preterm premature rupture of membranes, they they usually it's usually a result of some kind of infection or something that they tested me. I did not have any infection. So I don't know why that happened. They also I also later had read, I started doing some research, which I should not have done afterwards, but this Mm. is a part of the process that lots of us go through.
0: Yeah, trying to find meaning. Yeah, Yeah.
1: trying to figure out what was, like, what happened. Mm. I also found out that P-Prom is actually more common in multiple pregnancies, like where there's more than one baby, usually when they're bigger than what the girls were, but that is something that is a risk that I don't think a lot of people are aware of. I'd never heard of PEPROM before it happened to me. Yeah. So I just, I went into this kind of space of doing a lot of research at times and then also just disconnecting from everybody and everything, going to a really dark place emotionally. I am not, I think, I mean, we can pretty much discuss whatever here for the most part, kind of. Yes.
0: Yes. Yeah, okay. yeah. <laughs> Whatever you are comfortable <laughs> sharing, for sure. Yeah, okay. I, definitely. As a reminder to our our listeners, and at the beginning of the episode, is a reminder that at any time, if someone needs to take a, a break from listening, they're welcome to do that. Um, okay.
1: Yeah, I just I think it's important because I think a lot of people who may not have ever had any kind of like suicidal ideation or anything Mm -hmm. like that sometimes come across this during this period. And that was something that happened for me. There weren't any attempts. I didn't have any plans, like nothing like that. But I definitely had the feeling of like, I don't, I don't want to be here. I want to be with them. And that was really scary for me, too. Because I was like, right. ooh, that's not, I've never been in that mm-hmm. place of feeling mm-hmm. like that ever. And as a clinician, obviously, like, that also raised a flag for me. It's like, okay, yep. like yep. I, something needs to change here. So I started looking for a therapist. I did my own kind of risk assessment. <laughs> like uh, yeah, as we like, do. I not have a plan. I don't have any. <laughs> uh, okay. I'm not yeah. actually gonna do anything. This is just mm-hmm. grief. Like, but yeah, like that just that really deep sense of anguish and despair was really debilitating for me for a while. And then within a couple of days, I think so the girls were born on a on a Wednesday. I went home on a Thursday. By Friday night or so, my milk came in, <laughs> which I was not prepared for or warned about really. Actually, nobody even, nobody said nobody anything. Nobody said, like, oh, this might happen. And I think because I was so much in the grief, I didn't even Like Mm -hmm. it didn't even dawn on me. And I think I also thought that I was too early for that to be a response, but I wasn't. And yeah, that was really painful and I didn't know what to do with it. I didn't, there, there is this really strong physiological need to like express it. And I was like, I, I need this out. Like I I Uh needed to get out, but I also didn't want to stimulate it because then it would make more. And so it was just this real struggle of like, what do I what do I do? I wish I had known then about donate milk donation because I would have done that. I didn't know that, so I really was just trying to stop it from continuing to produce, yeah. which was super painful,
0: absolutely
1: and cabbage and ice packs and right, right. <laughs> all, things. And mm-hmm. all all of that stuff, yeah, and I remember just crying because of the pain and also because of like what it signified, and I was like, I have all this all this milk, and I have no babies to feed, like it just
0: devastated wrecked me, yeah,
1: yeah wrecked me. Mm-hmm. um. Yeah. So I mean, after that, it was really just me trying to move through the the healing process. We did end up finding a couples therapist that we were working with to support us through the grief stuff. I started journaling. I started writing as a way of trying to process. And then we just tried to start figuring out like what, what did we want to do with our life from that point on, did we want to try again? Did we want to take breaks? There was an urge to try immediately. Like as soon as my period came, my body was like, psych, uh, i not gonna come for like two months just so you can chill out. Actually, I think it was more like three months. Yeah, because they were born in June and we didn't try. We did end up trying again with IVF for two more cycles in like November, I think in December of 2017. Neither one of those produced a sufficient amount of eggs or a sufficient or the embryos during the testing ended up like disintegrating or what do they call it? Fragmenting during that process. So neither one of those produced any viable embryos to transfer.
0: During this this time, did you have any knowledge of and or access to specific types of support for loss? Yeah, I
1: did not. Not really. I started mm-hmm. to look and I think I had, I'd come across a couple of like the Facebook groups or so, mm-hmm. but I did not find anything that i felt like was specific to me or specific to my relationship so well this is this is not a secret my my partner i was in a same sex relationship my partner later transitioned and identifies as male currently but at the time we appeared to be two women in a relationship and so that What I was discovering was that when I was finding some groups, it did not feel inclusive of people of queer identity or people of different types of relationships. So there was a lot of pieces of that that felt like we were excluded to some
0: degree. Right.
1: We did end up going to an in-person loss group through this local group that's in this area. Similar feeling where Mm -hmm. we were the only queer couple, we were the only Black couple, and that just felt noticeable to me Um, right and it yeah
0: it made it it made it like hard to to get that the support you needed
1: yeah i do feel like that and there were some other things that were were said and done in the group that um in the in-person group that i i didn't feel like they really took care with certain things for example in one of the groups some a pregnant person came to the group and i was like uh oh Oh. I understand pregnancy after loss is a thing. I get it. I yeah, know. Yeah,
0: like, yeah, yeah. But,
1: However, nobody uh, else here is pregnant, and we it, didn't get any warning. Yeah, yeah. That no, this, was, cool. this person was going to be here. And that was not handled in, in a way that acknowledged it or mm-hmm. left room for processing or anything. Mm-hmm. So that mm-hmm. felt irresponsible. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that was necessarily about our identities. I think that was just something that happened in a group dynamic that I was uncomfortable with.
0: Sure. Um, But definitely after like you're noticing multiple things where you don't feel taken care of it's going to be and
1: then they're starting to stack up like mm -hmm. that's going to be really hard to get any kind of support. Exactly. And I remember saying, I think I said to the group leader, like when we first came to the the in-person group, it was maybe like two weeks after the girls had passed. That was one of the things that was listed in the documentation that the hospital gave us was this. Mm company that does groups in this general area. And I said to her, like, if there was a person who was in the group the day that this pregnant person came and I was mm-hmm. like, that person's loss was like four days ago. Like, can you imagine how she felt like yeah, yeah. coming in and had like, and there was no care around that. And that, that just really rubbed me the wrong way. Yeah. But that was really the only thing. So the in-person support group, which we mm-hmm. still felt kind of like marginalized. and And also I wasn't comfortable with how it was managed in some ways. And then some of the online, like Facebook stuff that I saw. Other than that, I really did not see anything that I felt like wasn't religion-based, wasn't inclusive, or didn't seem to just like center like cisgender, heterosexual, white people. I was like, I, I need something else. <laughs> I need something else. So that's actually how I ended up creating the blog and the writing that I was doing for myself and my own processing. I also was like, if this happened to me, I'm sure that there are other people like me who are also Mm -hmm. not seeing themselves reflected in the supports that are available. Mm -hmm. So how about I create it and we'll just see what happens. If it resonates with people, then cool. But ultimately this is part of me processing my stuff and, and raising awareness about prenatal loss in the black community and in black queer couples, queer community, family creation stuff. So that's how that whole thing kind of materialized out of that. Was that, was that right off?
0: um, Well, soon after the loss of the girls and before the the next rounds of IVF
1: started? Yeah, actually it was. Mm -hmm. They were, I think I must've posted the first posting for the blog in like late July or August and they were born Mm -hmm. in June Mm-hmm. Um, and then we tried again a few times after that with mm-hmm. the IVF. So it was kind of right in that in-between period that I started that. Yeah. So it was, it's was. it been a journey. <laughs> it's been a journey. It definitely has not always been easy, and it's been actually really hard in a lot of ways, and I've just been trying to find the beauty in it where I can and make the connections in it where I can and, and create content when and where possible for people who feel like they need it and feel like they're not seen or or they're excluded from certain other spaces
0: Uh, yeah absolutely and and specifically that your community is a
1: black angel mom
0: community The girls
1: would be they'll be five would have been five in the next um, couple of months and Mm -hmm. so it's still to this day they're very much a part of my life and my son's life and Mm -hmm. just I feel like it's it's an ongoing relationship, not in the way that I wanted or the way that I thought it would be, but they're still very much present figures in my life.
0: But yeah, yeah I mean, they're, they're included very much so in your day-to-day and in, in, in your week-to-week, it sounds like what you were saying. Yeah. Yep. Mm-hmm. yeah. What a beautiful way to honor them. And so I assume then also your son, you, you had a, your son shortly after. So
1: my son is adopted we adopted okay. him from birth. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So he, after we, I guess at, at the end of 2017, they actually like the company we were, or clinic we were working with, I use this phrase because this is what it feels like. They like kicked us out of that program based the shared risk program before ov- low ovarian response. Apparently it was in the contract. I didn't see that because it's small and it's on the, one of like 25 pages of stuff that you have to sign. And that was not clearly stated verbally to me. I tried to advocate and argue for like, I'm grieving. My body might not be responding well because I'm in the midst of intense grief. Mm-hmm. And like, can we do one more try? Can we just wait or whatever? And they were like, well, we can't keep you in this program. You can do another try of IVF, but you have to do it a la carte. Like, so just one at a time, which was at the time, I don't know how much it is now, but at the time that was like $14,000. So I said, okay, we just, I just, I need to take a break because then I'm also grieving that, right? Like grieving, what if we do another try and it doesn't work, then what? Then we're also out this $14,000 and don't necessarily have enough left in however much reserve we have for another try. So we stopped and just kind of sat in that grief and that painful space and that like N- not knowing what to do next. And then, like, through like three or so degrees of separation, like, someone who knew my partner at the time knew someone else who knew someone else who knew an adoption agency staff member who was looking for um, a particular type of family that a birth mom wanted to place the child with. That birth parent specifically said that she wanted to place the baby with a black lesbian couple. That agency did not have anybody who fit the person who knew the person who knew (laughs) the person who knew my ex-partner was like, hey, so are y'all, I know a lot of stuff has happened, but are y'all interested? And and so that ball kind of got rolling in that way. I mean, we said yes at first, then I said no (laughs) because I didn't know how expensive adopt private adoption was. And once I found out how expensive it was, I was like, okay, so this is. This is a choice now that we have to make. Right. Yeah, we have to make a choice between either we adopt this child or I continue with this fertility journey. We can't do both. Like right. it was no possible way to do both. Right. And so then there was grief around that, right? Like so, I'm thinking, I want this baby. Where's where is this child going to go if we don't take him? Like that's what I mm-hmm. I want this child. Mm-hmm. And oh my gosh, all of this money is gone. It took a lot for us to get this money up. We're not going to be able to get it up again with a baby for us to then try another round of IVF. So I then have to choose what do I want to do? And my partner at the time kind of left it up to me, but clearly had ideas about what he wanted to do. But ultimately we decided to adopt my son and that was a choice that we made. So yeah, so we adopted him from birth. We met his birth mom probably about a month or so, like maybe at the end of February, maybe we met her in February, 2018. Is less we, than a year after the loss of the girl. Less than a year. It was mm-hmm. like seven months, six, mm-hmm. seven months. Mm-hmm. In fact, Oh my gosh. That's like
0: crazy. whiplash, like grief and processing. And what what do I do? And am I going to carry or am I going to adopt? And
1: Exactly. And I think my if I'm doing my math correctly, right, at the time, I think if I was doing my math correctly, that my son was probably... Conceived around the time the girls passed, like right around the time that they were born. Like I think it's it happened in that same month, <laughs> based on the timeline of when he was actually born. So his birthday is March thirtieth, and he just turned four last week. Yeah, so we met her. She liked us. We liked her, and and yeah, it just seemed like a good fit. We were glad that she picked us. It was apparently between us and another uh, couple. And she picked us and she picked us because we had lost the girls that was part of our adoption profile was we had put that information in there about what happened. And she was really sensitive to that. So, yeah. So we got a call that he was we knew he was being born via C-section. So we knew what day exactly he was going to be born. We got the call that he was born. So, so we start headed over to the hospital, get to the hospital, talk to social worker, blah, blah, blah. And then we find out that birth mom did not want us to see him that day. So I was like, ah, panicking. Oh my gosh, yeah. she's changing her mind. Yeah. I understand what it's like to have a baby. I would, I, I am so grateful to birth parents. And I also know that, as, especially as an experience I had just had, there's no way that I would be able to see that baby. And so I had this weird sense of like empathy for her, but mm-hmm. also angry, anger mm-hmm. and sadness mm-hmm. and grief and worry mm-hmm. and all this other kind of stuff. We did end up seeing him, meeting him the next day on the 31st. Yeah, on the 31st. And then we ended up bringing him home on the 4th or the 3rd. It was Easter, like Easter Sunday that year.
0: we brought him home. Like a couple of days ago. (laughs) Like (laughs) Like, like, now. Yeah. Oh, wow. Wow. Yeah. That is such an intense period of time. I mean, you had already, leading up to the loss of the girls, you had already been through a roller coaster of all the IUIs and... Hoping and wishing, and then whatever the process was for not for the pregnancies not taking yeah. surgeries, and it's it's a lot. And then so you you get to this point where now you have this baby
1: mm-hmm.
0: that you want, and
1: what what's what are those feelings like? Oh, so complex. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it was awe when I saw him. I was like oh my gosh, like he's here. This is our baby. We're going to be bringing him home. I was excited. And I kept looking at him and I kept seeing her face because we had met her and obviously seen her again the day after the birth and whatnot. People say my son looks a lot like me. I think sometimes when you're with someone a lot, they start to look like you, but also I know her face and I don't think we look alike. So I can see her face. Even now I can see some of her features in him. And at the time, especially when he was a, like just born, I just kept seeing her. And it just kept giving me this feeling of, he's not mine. So it was like this conflicting, this is our baby, we're bringing him home, blah, blah, blah. But we also had the revocation period of 30 days. Like she could change her mind within that period of time. We didn't know. And just the grief, like having this little person. And every time I looked at him, I was simultaneously seeing beauty and feeling some sense of love, but also feeling like my babies will never be this age. Like the babies that I gave birth to will never be this age. I'll never have that experience with them. I'll never get to see them do this or make this face or whatever. And so it was, it was really tough. I definitely fully believe that a, I had some form of like PTSD, also just some form of depression after. And that was complicated by the grief, of course. And I think I had like a post-adoption Depression mm-hmm. as well. He had a little bit of colic at a certain point. So we were dealing with that. It was a lot. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It was it was difficult for sure. Lots of beautiful moments and lots of things that I feel like I was able to lean into to some degree, but there was always this back of mind kind of that I just had other babies and they're they're dead. And people saying, Oh, is this your first? And I'm like, no, he. It's not actually. Oh, well, how old are other kids? Well, they actually just died, like in June. So it was like figuring out how to have these kinds of conversations with people. How do I count my children? What do I, what do I say when people ask me that kind of thing? What do I want for his story? Right? Do I want him to experience a mom that is super depressed all the time, and have that be like his childhood memory? Do I want him to know about his sister? Do I want him to know about his adoption story early? Do I want to tell him later? I mean, it was just was like a whole lot of figuring out. Right. Um, but. Right.
0: It's, know, like it's like crazy. this, like, not rush, but just like moving forward, trying to get to a point. And then that point comes and then this, this whole other bag of things opens up Yeah, to have to, to figure out, to have to figure out. Right
2: Oh,
3: hey, everybody. It's us, Blair and Molly, your old pals from Toddler Purgatory, two moms who are also actors, who are also creative beings, who sometimes feel stuck. And now we're back with a whole new podcast about unsticking it, launching in January. What happens when life gets in the way of our creativity instead of nourishing it? We talk to all sorts of guests about how to break through the mucky, gluey, sticky wall that can get between you and your creativity. We hear about their journeys, their successes, their challenges, and even their bougie coffee shop orders. Mm. So join us, won't you, as we deep dive into how to unstick ourselves from the life gunk that can get in the way of our creative freedom. Get out of there, life gunk. Let us help you get back to your best creative self. Look for Unsticking It with Blair and Molly. Wherever you listen to podcasts starting in January. Unsticking It with Blair and Molly. Because sometimes life sucks.
0: Yeah, I mean, it makes perfect sense what you're describing, all of the things you're feeling. And I'm sure a lot more that, than that. You can't even tie it up in a, in a little bow or anything. It's a, it's a kind of a process. It sounds like that breaks you wide open and it's very messy
1: emotionally. Super messy. Super Mm -hmm. messy. I've, yes, (laughs) Mm -hmm. super messy. I'm grateful that I was in a form of therapy at the time. I'm grateful that I found even the therapist that I currently see now. I've been seeing her for a while um, since he was little. He might have been just shy of two when I started seeing her. So, yeah, it's just that kind of support was super helpful. Then finding some other community, pouring into the Black Angel Mom community was also really healing and helpful for me as well.
0: other people that were more in line with being a Black mother or being a queer mom or queer parent.
1: Yeah, yeah, so they're definitely, yes like short answer is yeah Uh, yeah, yeah. that the closed community or private community is exclusively for Black moms. So you have to identify as Black in order to be part of that. The front facing things and some of the other things that I create are for anybody who's had this experience. But that insular community was something that I felt like was really important to be a safe space. I also really wanted to provide room for people who did not subscribe to like organized religion because some of the the black stuff or the, the people that the organizations or services that are available for black folks are often have a heavy religion component. And that was not something that I wanted to force on people because I know it could feel like a little bit exclusionary. So, so yeah, I just, it's a space for everybody of any religion or not, if that's not what you were part of, it's a space for anybody of any identity. Um, yeah. If, so, if you have been pregnant and you have lost a baby or if you have not been the person who was pregnant, but you are a support person, there is room and space for you in that group as well. So
0: has it been growing pretty steadily since then?
1: It's been growing pretty steadily. It slowed down a little bit because I'm horrible at advertising. <laughs> <laughs> horrible at advertising. <laughs> Yeah, God, it's hard. Mm-hmm. My existence. Um, but. <laughs> right, right. But yes, it does. It definitely has grown to include lots of different folks and people's kind of cycle in and out too, where they're more active, depending on how close to their loss it was that they joined or if they are a little bit farther out. But yeah, it's pretty it's pretty active and folks are still in there sharing and talking and requesting to join and stuff like that. So,
0: yeah. So going back through your journey a bit, you already shared with us ways that you were marginalized in different spaces. If there are any others that you can identify for us where you felt you experienced that marginalization and then secondarily think, advice or thoughts that you would give to people who are having those experiences.
2: Sure.
1: Yeah, I'm thinking about as early as the beginning part of the fertility treatments when we were still in IUI phase and just being the the only queer couple that I could that were noticeably queer in the space, having people assume that my partner was my like support person versus my partner. And even questions that came up, though I intellectually I understand why they came up, but it also felt a little bit insensitive in that people would ask questions about whether like who was gonna carry and if there were issues, would my partner be willing? And that to me felt like a skirting of our birth plan to some degree. And mm-hmm. just because there are two people with a uterus does not mean that both people want to carry a baby in their body right. Um, right. or that even egg, what do they call that? Co-mothering mm-hmm. in that way where there's the, the egg is taken from the other parent and mm-hmm. put into fertilizer and then put into transferred into the person that's going to carry there. I just feel like there wasn't... <clears throat> There was a little insensitive insensitivity about that. And it was looked at more as like we have got we have two containers, so we can put it in this container or we can put it in this container. Which one kind of thing? Is, right. It's exactly. like so very like, a like cringy. Yeah. Um, and Eve, uh, I remember this actually happened later. So I'm kind of jumping a little bit, but this happened probably actually within the past three years, I went to um, just to get a consult from a different fertility company. And the, the physician said, well, we can use your partners because I was older at that point. And I was like, my partner is trans, and that's not something that we want to do. And the, the physician was just like, "Oh, that's okay. We'll just do the hormone stimulation." Excuse me, like, <laughs> excuse me. That is like not. That's not an okay thing to to ask outright and to suggest without finding out what people's bandwidth is. Feel ragey about that. Oh my gosh! Yeah, it was super insensitive, and and really did not consider people of trans experience and like mm-hmm. all that goes on for them in terms of like, if they're doing hormone therapy type stuff, like Mm -hmm. the hormones made me feel crazy. Like I can't imagine, and I'm a cisgender woman. So I cannot imagine a person who identifies as trans having to, they've already gone through whatever parts of their transition that they want to go through. And then you're suggesting something that would really kind of reverse a lot of that and the dysphoria and everything that would come up about Mm -hmm. it that really... Just wasn't even considered and so i think that there's oh, cold it's so cold it's just so ugh. and that's why i feel like it's like a container or like, mm-hmm, it's like mm-hmm. does this bucket have the stuff that we need or does this bucket have the stuff that we need and if one doesn't then we'll just take some from that one and put it in mm-hmm. that one and that that level of medicalization and insensitivity sometimes is like oh just really it's really just like it's not okay
0: it's not okay and there's such a deep and sick history that you can like draw a line directly back to that is just like how is it even possible that in this day and age people can still be like that right
1: I mean I know how, how it's possible but yeah ugh, it's- how infuriating and mm-hmm. and also like. It kind of, I think that we have responses that vary, but there are definitely moments where you you think you might say something else, but sometimes you freeze because you're so shocked that right, right, it was right. even said. It's yeah, like, yeah. Did that, wait a minute, like, did that just Ugh. really happen to me right. just now? It, mm-hmm, it really mm-hmm, is mm-hmm. crazy having experiences as a Black woman in healthcare and just feeling. Like my pain was dismissed or my concerns were dismissed as I already have mentioned with the with the leaking. I was dismissed
0: right, right. more than
1: once. Like, oh no, it's just this. Don't worry, you're panicking, don't worry, it's not a big deal. And it's like I would never if a pregnant person came to me and said, Hey, I'm leaking, how about we take a look and get you in for an appointment today? Like that's what to me would be an appropriate response, but that's not the response that I got. I remember having a, one of the IUI cycles, the, the physician could not, who was not my regular doctor, it was someone who was there on a different day. The He couldn't get the, like the catheter thing. My uterus is tilted a little bit. So I guess the angle or whatnot, he couldn't get the catheter in to put the sperm. And so he had to use one of those rods to try to open my cervix which is, I forget what they're called, but it's the same rod that they use to open your cervix for anything else, like for IUD or even abortions. Like they do that. That was really painful. And I said it was really painful. And he's like, oh, the cervix doesn't have too many nerve endings. So we had to cancel that whole retrieval because I started crying and I like backed up on the bed and it was just like really, really, it was too uncomfortable for me to um, stomach that. But yeah. So just ign- feeling ignored, feeling like my pain was ignored, my concerns were ignored, feeling like my relationship was either miscategorized or just viewed as another vessel for us to create a family. And I, on one hand, I try to be, and maybe this is me explaining it away, but I really tried I tried to always think of the full context. And I'm like, this is their job. Their job is to help people have children and their job is to figure out how I can help you do that. Right. So just on a basic level, that's kind of like where what a lot of the framework is. However, we're people, though. We're not just like things to breed or be bred or whatever. It just it felt gross (laughs) in ways that Mm -hmm. I didn't appreciate. And I think like I think from a mental health standpoint and a a relational health standpoint, there is if you are a queer couple, there is. there's no part of your family creation process for the most part that is intimate or private or even just like pleasurable in a sexual way, right? Like it's not, you're going to the doctor, somebody else is in the room, somebody else is using a speculum and opening this and doing that and giving you needles and blah, blah, blah. Like there's, there's even so much probing and poking, right? Like just from, you're getting blood draws multiple times a week, you're constantly getting transvaginal ultrasounds and depending on where your ovaries are they're moving the stick all crazy and it's inside your body like you feel all of that and nothing nothing about that is some of the pleasure that can happen between like cisgender people cisgender heterosexual people who are having sex and like creating a life right so just our experience in it is very different for the most part is is very different and i think that that is something that can be missed and can really make it feel even more just medicalized, like not, not this beautiful, wonderful process sometimes, but just like this procedure and that, I just feel like there's sensitivity around that is really useful, talking to people about what their plans are and what, their, what are their thoughts about how they want to create a family. That's useful rather than like suggesting stuff because this is what was possible as a physician or as, a, as medical staff. Of course, listening to people and their pain, recommending supportive services that are for queer folks and just the... The nuance and the specifics that go along with how we have to create families if we go that kind of route, and and how that just it shifts up what a lot of people take for granted, I think, as just being oh this beautiful thing that happened and we made a baby. It's like it is beautiful from a if you are a science nerd like I am, like from a medical standpoint, absolutely, Uh it's amazing that Mm -hmm, you can create mm -hmm. a life. And though we're we're people, we're people, and all those things have impact and matter. And hurt.
0: Yeah. I mean, it, I'm absolutely oversimplifying it, but I feel like if people could just hold on to that, what you just said, like the people first, um, mm-hmm. humans first, people who have feelings first, yeah. uh, and then go from there. And I, th- I think it's like you were describing, just trying to say like, okay, this is his job. This is what he's doing. He's trying to help. I mean, if it makes sense to go to that place if you're trying to cope with, What's going on? Like you you have to try and hold on to something that like, uh, why you're doing this, why you're still there, like literally in that office, kind of a thing. Like, how do you get, just get through this, but you shouldn't have to, you shouldn't,
1: you just shouldn't. Yeah. Because there's so much intentionality in it too. Like there's so much. Yeah, just like intention, like when you go through that kind of process, and even this is even true for for cisgender heterosexual people. Like if you are going through assisted reproductive technologies, there's a lot of intention behind trying to get pregnant. Mm -hmm. It's not just we were out having fun one night and whoops, I'm pregnant. Like Mm -hmm. there's a lot of planning. There's a lot of prep and things Mm -hmm. that go into it. And so there's a lot riding on the experience people are coming in with a level of anxiety a level of worry a level of hope a level of wonder and confusion and all these things and like that needs to be considered i think more than it is oh
0: yeah i i I mean sometimes i i'm like so hopeful that the the people who kind of need to hear this are listening both both to this conversation here but just listening in in general Eh. I just, sometimes it makes, it it feels like there's so far to go still. And although I know, and I hear what, like there are very much parts of your experience where the, the right approach to, to you and to, to people who have feelings was taken, but uh, a lot of it just, well, let me restate that. Like some of it just sounds like the cold medical part. Yeah. Um, I, I, I just, like, how much is that impacting your mental health? you and and anyone who's experiencing it? And I, I love the the way that you described it, like the the new these nuances and like interactions with providers that you might not be able to catch in the moment, but have to process later or might not even like fully register as something you have to process, but is just kind of piling in on the angst and the the grief and the feelings of depression. It just gets so heavy mm-hmm. and then you're left to try and deal with that while you're trying to exactly. raise a human <laughs> exactly <laughs> exactly it, it's yeah it's it's a lot to do and and I hear that the the process is I mean, in many ways and I mean you I'm sure you hear this all the time from lost parents like it, it's not something you're not it's like done you're not right. done grieving it's with you you're just kind of trying to figure out how to live with this. with what happened with the loss of your babies.
1: Yeah. I forget who said this, but I I saw it somewhere and I think it's really a helpful way to think about grief. It's like the grief doesn't necessarily shrink, but like you grow around it. So you, you get bigger, you learn how to cope in different Mm -hmm. ways. You, Mm -hmm. it doesn't take up as much mental and physical space as it once did. If you Mm -hmm continue to do your work and meaning making and healing and stuff like that, then it 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 affects you a little bit differently, but it's always, it doesn't like disappear. It happens. It's always there. So Mm -hmm. yeah, I like the idea of like you grow around it.
0: Sounds like that's what you've been doing. Yeah, for sure.
1: And,
0: And now helping other people.
1: Do that. I hope, so. <laughs> I hope so. It seems like it. I mean, that's the feedback that I get for sure. But but yeah, that's that's my goal. This is a hard thing to deal with. Perinatal loss is super common, particularly mm-hmm. the miscarriage category is mm-hmm. super duper common. People do not talk about it. People also think of it as one way. And like technically my girls that was considered a miscarriage because it was before twenty weeks, but they were born like I vaginally gave birth to them. They were alive. They were moving like all those things. This, that's not everybody's grief and experience of their grief is different. But what I'm saying here is that like, it's not one way when you think about miscarriage, this is not a heavy period as some people say, which is not even true for people who have that experience, but like, it's not that there's also these people that have fully formed babies that they pass and that they, Birth and also have that experience too. So, but it's so common and people don't talk about it, I think, as as much as they should, unless you're kind of in this community. So, you don't find out sometimes that people have even had miscarriages until you say you did. And then, right? Yeah. Yeah. I did too. And you're like, was nobody going to say anything? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Right. (laughs) Um, Yeah. yeah. Absolutely.
0: So, so that helps. I'm sure if you're getting the feedback that that it's been helpful, then and, and you're you're filling a gap for sure in in what people's needs are. It's just it's just so beautiful that um like you're difficult, so hard and and beautiful, in in that you've turned your pain into this service for others and ability to to support and be there for other people. It, it's it's quite a journey. And and I know uh, for me anyways, I can say that like in the process of helping people, it also kind of ends up supporting us to continue to heal too. I'm speaking about in, in a different context for me than for what you're describing, but healing can come from helping others as well. 100%. Yeah. 100%. Yeah. So that is in the Black Angel Mom community and people can, I'm going to make sure to include all of the ways to connect with you and connect with what you're doing in our show notes. And but people can go to blackangelmom.com mm-hmm. and jhjtherapy.com to see what you're, what you're offering. Yep.
1: Yeah. Blackangelmom.com has most of the like resource stuff JHJ therapy is my therapy practice and obviously i do work with folks who have experienced perinatal loss or in the family creation process so from like a therapy place they can go to that page but if you're just looking for the blog or looking to pick up the journal which is actually on amazon not on that page but you can click (laughs) from that page Uh um, or the cards or anything else is is on the blackangelmom.com blog site okay
0: I appreciate you so much for coming on and sharing so much of your time with us. I, I, I took up quite a bit of your time <laughs> and, and also I value that you shared all of it with us today. So thank you so much.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Thank you again, Janae. We really appreciate you sharing your story with us. It is so incredibly difficult to imagine how people can make their way through such difficult experiences as perinatal loss. But Janae did and is continuing her process, but in the meantime has also created such a beautiful community for other people. So if you'd like to get connected with her in that community, you can go to blackangelmom.com or you can check out her private practice website, which is jhjtherapy.com. She can be found on Instagram and Facebook at blackangelmom Mom or jhjtherapy. As usual, please share this with anyone who you think could benefit from hearing this story and this support. And I thank you so much for being with us until next time. Thank you so much for joining us today. Please share this podcast together. We can support moms and families so that no one has to deal with this alone. Come connect with us at momandmind.com.